Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Events, either standalone or even as part of a rights holder, such as Team Community Days or end-of-season functions, bring people together, albeit sometimes for a short period of time, where they are highly engaged and usually with really positive attitudes. For rights holders, there is a finite amount of time to deliver the event and in turn deliver for sponsors. It's not a lot of wriggle room if something goes wrong. Still, for sponsors, events can be highly attractive because of the large gathering of people who are highly engaged and who are from their target audience. So whether you are a rights holder or a brand, all of this presents not just a big opportunity, but also a unique set of challenges in executing sponsorship. And somebody who is well-placed to discuss the unique challenges, how to navigate them and then enjoy success, is Roberta Vigilance. Since 1997, Roberta, through her event planning company, Vigilance Style and Grace, has consulted and taught how to plan sponsored events and secure sponsors from local through to corporate brands. And Roberta joins us later in the show to discuss all things event sponsorship. Welcome to episode 52 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and I trust that the year has gotten off to a great start for you, and thanks for tuning into this episode. And whether you're a long-term listener or have only just discovered the podcast, it is great to get a Facebook or a LinkedIn message or an email from you, letting us know where you are in the world and what work you are doing in the sponsorship industry. So don't be shy, get in touch and say hello, because we really do love hearing from you, the listeners. Mohammed Rehan recently did that on LinkedIn and wrote, I found your podcasts through a mutual connection, Aaron Warburton, who was on your last episode, and I was instantly hooked. I just wanted to say thank you for providing such a great service where I can hear from industry professionals regularly rather than going to conferences. I am currently studying a Bachelor of Sports Management, and I would like to take my career path to sponsorship. And after listening to episode 51 with Aaron, I decided to listen to all the episodes and have gotten up to episode 11, which was not-for-profit sponsorship, so that one would have been with Abby Clements, and found it quite interesting because I've just gotten an intern role as a sponsorship and partnerships assistant at Bicycle New South Wales. I just want to say I love your podcast and I'm looking forward to many more episodes. Super cool, Muhammad, and glad you're enjoying the show. Uh, hope you're doing well in your studies. And yes, we, we had loads of great feedback and downloads on, on Aaron's episode, so it seemed to really strike a chord with the listeners. And I look forward to hearing from you again when you've caught up on all of the episodes. Thanks for listening and getting in touch. Hugh Rogan, Strategic Partnerships Manager at IMG, also got in touch and wrote, always look forward to new episodes of the Inside Sponsorship Podcast, so I thought I'd reach out and connect. Hugh, that's awesome, short, sweet and simple. It means you get a shout out. Great to hear from you and connect. Hope you're doing well and glad you like the show. Now, I know I'm preaching to the converted here when I say sponsorship isn't all beer and skittles, but it still sucks when your organisation hasn't had a great year or period of performance and you still have to report to your sponsors. And when Mark Thompson, our MD, worked in professional rugby, it used to stress him out a little bit as well. However, it isn't all doom and gloom, and Mark joins us to share a valuable lesson he learned about reporting during bad times. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome to the show. It's your, your first one for the year. 
They'll do the first yeah, one no, for you is, with Sam. This is my first one for 2018. Very good. It's end of the month. What have you been doing all month? Mate, I've been... <laughs> you don't want to know. Well, I've been out of action It's uh, with a, uh, a, an injury that most 70-year-olds have. Mm. <laughs> so you, speaking of 70 years, over that period of time, you probably would have done your fair share of sponsorship recaps? Yes, mate, heaps. One of your favourite jobs? Um, I like delivering them. Yeah. Putting them together is a massive pain. Because they don't always happen in periods of, if you work for a sports rights holder, they don't always happen in years of great team success or if you're not in the sports rights holder uh, sector, then you know your organisation might not have had a great year for a number of different reasons. So they don't always happen in positive environments. Yeah, do they? like I said, I had one particular job where we never had a good year the whole time I was there. <laughs> what made, about after you left? They was the, it? They made the finals the next year. Oh. <laughs> anyway, but, less said about that, the better. But it, did it used to stress you out doing it in periods well, of? Absolutely, it's it's tough, right? It's, the the thing is that sometimes we get stuck on the emotional side of reporting, and when you don't have the positive emotion to lean on, what are you left with, right? And so those factors are out of your control. But you did eventually leave that. Uh, organization where they didn't have a, a number of great years yes. in a row and you're delivering reports that aren't always in a positive light in terms of organization and team success and you worked in fundraising and sponsorship in a non-sports sector so yes. a, a different sector and it actually made you look at reporting from a different light didn't it yeah it did i actually worked for, for one of australia's biggest charities and uh you know there's no broadcast numbers there's no win-loss record there's definitely no fan clubs or you know groups. There's, there's obviously members and supporters and things like that, but but there's none none of that sort of fluff to to really bolster up a story, um, you know that you would tell there. But but the stories were still there, right? And so the difference that I found was that the stories in in the not for profit and charitable sector, you know, they're impactful. They're actually aligned to outcomes and objectives. You know, for us it was. Every every dollar that is donated can reduce the, the the hunger level of a family or puts put a child through school, and you could actually show outcomes to the, to the objectives and what you're raising the money for, and and you know that that was sort of helping to drive reporting to donors, sponsors, and grant makers in a way that is purely aligned to a basic set of objectives, really basic set of objectives that we had as an organisation. And then they had a set of objectives to have a, a sort of a good social responsibility and be seen from that sort of brand awareness and community engagement side. So quite a basic sort of set, but it but it actually drove messages of positive change. And you know, certain brands were able to use that to generate brand positioning pieces. And um, you know, the organisation without massive membership bases or numbers raised just as much money as any sporting organisation I've ever worked in and more, actually five times more, off the back of being able to tell really good stories. And so you learnt that and, and applied that in that organisation and then now you're, you're back working in uh, yeah. this sector, yeah. still sponsorship, but you know, we touch on a lot of sports rights holders a lot. You yep. think they can learn from what you learnt when you weren't working in sports anymore? Yeah, well, actually in between the charity work and, and then um, launching sponsor of, I worked in fundraising for sport and so it combined sponsorship philosophy charitable fundraising philosophy to how to raise money for sport and it's a it's a different 
income stream, right? You've got your sponsorship, which are aligned to a set of objectives, and then you've got fundraising, which is more, you know, outcomes sort of social responsibility based and community sort of engagement based or, or specific projects based. And again, the, the basis of good fundraising is storytelling and the basis of good sponsorship is storytelling. And that's what I learned, right? The key element is, um, you know, to try and understand that a successful selling a successful organization is easy because as you said to me last week people buy on emotion mm. and you know as a sponsorship manager reporting success feels good but actually it's flawed because it never actually gets to the core of what we need and should be reporting to our sponsors you reckon it's fair to say we, i mean it's a known fact that people um buy on emotion yeah and they probably also look at their sponsorship reports with some emotional attachment. Is it fair to say you should just shift that emotional attachment away from the organisation's success as much and just uh, align it and tell the story about how it's helped their organisation? Because to be fair, if they're business owners and senior managers and it's their career, they're probably more emotionally invested in that than they are of some team's success that they might not even personally follow. No, absolutely. And, And I mean... The holy grail is to have both, right? Win the premiership, yeah. have, have a, a, you know, exceed your sort of your, your ambitions in terms of reducing, you know, the levels of homelessness or whatever, whatever it is that you're raising money for, um, and also align to the objectives and tell good stories. That's the holy grail. But you, the, the the emotional side of it, that won't that won't actually win or keep good strategic partners. And so in that reporting, it it shifts it and and makes it a little bit of a different proposition and you really need to cut through through that emotion and and drill down to some of the facts. What are some of those key key facts, those key points that we should be covering off? So it's just the the basic four, the the why, what, when and how, right? So the why a brand is sponsoring us, what are they getting out of it, when are they expecting impact of their sponsorship to occur and how are they measuring that impact? And then you need to report against those four key measures as a, as a sort of a basic starting point. And in true Mark Thompson fashion, you've broken down uh, those, what they need to report against yep. to three key elements that will make up a good report. Yeah. What's the first one? So the, the sort of the key elements to good reporting is, is that you have to have a good process of reporting. So knowing the, the you know, the four key, how, what, when and how, um, why's, um, before you actually go into a reporting process is, is is key because it sets off the process in sponsorship reporting which helps navigate away from the emotional side and instead focus on the operation and business reasons. So there you, therefore you're insuring yourself against factors outside of your control such as performance. And so then, you know, the process of continual effort to sticking to that is really important. So you're building your story as you go. And so some organisations may report monthly some right report annually but but actually whether you're reporting annually or monthly you still should be continually building your story Mm. Um, staying on message staying on message because it holds you there it helps protect against knowledge loss if you decide to leave an organization or somebody that's important to the reporting processes you know there's continuity there and it definitely should not be a once a year proposition so i said some people do it once don't do it once because um even if you're just building reports for your own internal use, it helps arrest poor sort of alignment to objectives and things like that so you can pivot away midterm. And it should be an ongoing story building against those objectives and metrics so that when you 
um, have set your annual preview, you know what they are, and then you're consistently sort of tracking against those for the time when you're able to review against that in a recap. Is that the second key element to always be building and communicating? Yeah, so one of the big things that helps the process is the constant communication with your partner and internally. So, you know, regardless of what's happening on the pitch or, you know, out in your sort of community, reporting against the set objectives can tell a totally different story to that of poor performance. You know, I've seen plenty in, in sort of our travels. We work, you know, with you know, hundreds of teams all over the world um, and we've spoken to them and plenty of them tell really good stories when the team has gone not as well as they'd have hoped. Like their outcomes and their engagement with an audience and things like that have actually increased and the metrics and the, the reasons um, brands are engaging with them have increased while the team's performance decreased. And here in Australia, you know, Brisbane Broncos in the midst of their worst run in, you know, a long time, but they're just continually telling stories. They're continually selling and their, their commercial revenues just keep growing. Interestingly, I wonder whether what I tell my wife around following and supporting sport translates into sponsorship. It would be interesting to get <laughs> your view. And, well, the, I mean, and particularly when your team's not doing well, right? Yeah. Like as a Parramatta supporter, uh, we have not done well for quite some time. We're, we're yeah. starting to enjoy a little bit of success now, but certainly not winning comps. And she says... Why do you do it? Like, why do you get so emotionally invested? And I say to her, because when we finally do win a comp, I don't care if it's in another 40 years, it's going to be the greatest day ever. But because we've been with them through those hard times. And I think yep. while people still buy on emotion, obviously, and the sponsorship's about aligning to that sponsors, that brand's business objectives, and they're looking for ROO and ROI – still they've been there through the tough times it just creates more of a partnership because you've been there to help each other in the hard times yeah and and from the operational side of things being able to to build and communicate and have a really good process there it sort of it helps you control and it helps you measure growth it's tangible um, it's consistently measurable but it, as i said it's within your control but don't discount how much how important a well-organized and professionally run front office is to the success of a team on the pitch. Mm. You know, as they say, a fish rots from the head down. So, you know, being organised, professional, on top of your game, having engaged partners that aren't engaged only for team performance, that are engaged because of what you bring them, what your fans bring them, what your community brings them, that will have an impact on your team's performance over a period of time. So we focus on the why, the what, the when and the how we have a good process for, for reporting and we're always building and communicating. The third point is around presentation. Mm. It's, it's cool to get some PowerPoints and throw them together and those little bean man clip arts and, yeah. and, and cut and paste a few numbers in, it's done. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've, I've titled this Quality Presentation Matters, but I don't want the, the people that have read the blog to think exactly what you've just said. <laughs> Put together a really gra nice graphic designer, throw it at a partner and that matters. Well... You know, it matters. Effort matters. That's the big thing, right? But but think about this. A brand, one of your sponsors, have got 12 sponsorships. Let's just say that, right? And every one of those people they sponsor, rights holders, just like you know the listeners, have their own whip process, communication process, their own reporting process that they stick to. And they think that's great. They think we've got a great process and we're going to push this out to our because it works for me to our brands because it works for me. But every twelve of those rights holders have got 
a different process. So the brand is then forced to swallow 12 different processes. So, so inefficient, right? And particularly because they're their objectives and what they're looking to achieve out of the sponsorship and the measurement is mostly going to be Yeah, there'll be the some same. strategic yeah. changes, but but other rights holders will be making assumptions about how a report should be presented because they want to make it look pretty and they want to force a, a, a brand down their sort of process. But how about sitting down with the brand and saying, how, how do you need the information presented to you? Because your contact at that brand is on your team. You know, they, they're the one that are, they're trying to make this work so that they look good and then they need to report up the chain to A, look good and B, get approval to continue with that partnership, right? So so actually work with them around what, what reporting works for you. So don't have one report template for 50 sponsors. Build reports for sponsors as they need to see them and put the information in that they need to see building still remembering to build against those key objectives and the stories that we spoke about earlier and on the flip side if you're a brand and you're listening to this and you're getting those 12 reports don't be scared to sit down with a rights holder and say hey look love your reports yep. you know sandwich your stuff with positive feedback positive right yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. simple coaching kids type stuff so we love your your, your feedback and, and your reports and, yeah. and and your interaction but it'd be great if we got it this way yeah. Because if you're going out to your rights holders and saying, for us to be able to report success and maintain the sponsorship, we need this type of information. Don't be scared to ask for it. Don't just sit there and be passive in that process yeah. yourself. And and mate, we, we I'm not just saying that, right? I've we've we both you and I have literally been told that by mm. brands themselves. Um, in our day-to-day business, and it's the exact reason we built that feature into Sponsor, right, is just to create that consistency and ease of effort for, yep. for the brands. So let's tie it all together. What do you need to do to get it right? So understanding that sponsorship's a marketing strategy rather than just a meaningless, like, spend on funding entertainment, which is, you know, what it used to be. When I first entered the sponsorship game, you know, it was all about the, the, the biggest sponsors were just all about having a good time, right? And, they yeah, they get some signage and whatever, but whatever. But it's now moving way more down the strategy, sponsorship as a, as a sort of strategy sort of route. And so it's super important to know that and get it right. And so then aligning the opportunities and sponsor engagements with you know proper commercial objectives in a marketing sense is far more reliable than just waiting for things out of your control, like individuals to, to turn up and play well. Very good. You got any trips? planned uh, where are you going when are you going well with the uh the 70 year old injury i'm laid up for a little bit but yeah. uh a little bit of domestic stuff hey, you lie down in first class on those planes you fly <laughs> around <in. laughs> a little bit of domestic stuff around australia um february and then uh off to the states the i think i arrive of new york the 4th of march for four or five days and then off to south by southwest actually in austin yep. for um for the sports portion of that for, for four or five days and then back home to Oz and then um, out to the UK a couple of weeks after that. Very good. So if you, uh, you're in the US, either New York or uh, Austin, and you're, you're going to be going to South by Southwest or you just want to catch up for a coffee and, and talk shop with Mark, make sure you hit us up at sponsorv.net and I'm sure he'll make that happen for you. And, of course, if you want to read uh, all those elements that we just spoke about uh, in that chat with Mark, just head along to sponsorv.net and it's all up there in the blog section. Thanks for joining us. No worries, mate. 
Whether you're a rights holder or a brand, events present a unique set of challenges in executing sponsorship well. And joining us to help navigate event sponsorship and enjoy success is Roberta Vigilance. And since 1997, Roberta, through her event planning company, Vigilance Style and Grace, has consulted and taught how to plan sponsored events and secure sponsors from local through to corporate brands. Roberta is also an author of many books which focus on various areas of event sponsorship. Here's Roberta. Roberta Vigilance, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions. Every guest gets the same couple of icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better and and start off on an easy foot, so to speak. And the first question for you, the first icebreaker question is, if you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? I would be Daphne Hall. Uh, in her days, in the days of her mother, I'm sure it must have been almost impossible to own anything or share her vision with people who were used to the same old, same old, who did things the same and probably expected a different outcome. Um, Daphne was innovative, not only as a woman, but a woman of color. Uh, Daphne Hall is my grandmother. She had four children, one passed away at a, at a young age. She was able to leave one of her, or each one of her surviving child a home with land. And I chose to be her for one day just to get to meet my great-grandmother, maybe even my great-great-grandmother, to be among innovative thinkers and leaders. Wow, that is some achievement to be able to leave each of one of your children at home. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that for my children. Uh, Roberta, the second question is, what was your first ever job? My my first job, Danielle, was at 16. I worked as a cashier at a supermarket in New York City. Um, looking back now in hindsight, I believe it was preparing me to work in sales. Uh, the, the job, it was much more than ringing up a sale, right? It was answering customers' questions. It was uh, keeping the area clean to attract customers, making sure that my register balanced out, et cetera. So I think all of that was preparing me for, um, for, for, for where I am today. Very good, and I think a lot of people have started in jobs like that, and it does set you off on the right foot and the right direction. You're now, fast forward uh, a fair while, you're now the owner of Vigilance Style and Grace. How long ago did you launch the business, and, and how did it come about? Actually, February 19th of this year, it's going to be 20 years. Um, I was in college simultaneously working as an account executive in 1997. When this young woman, her name is Sebastian, she came into the office. I was at the front desk. I was covering for the receptionist at the time. Uh, Sebastian and I, we hit it off. Uh, She noticed my accent and asked me where I'm from. I told her I was raised in Guyana, and she had a very bold accent. I know she was Jamaican. Long story short, she explained to me that uh, she's working on a project and she was very shy 
when it came to approaching celebrities. And she asked me if I would help her uh, approach celebrities for her calendar. So I told her yes. Uh, during working on the project, I met a lot of um, not only the celebrities, but the people who worked behind the scenes. I noticed they were actually the real movers and the shakers who made up the celebrities. The celebrities, they were just like products, right? Made up by managers and photographers, the makeup artists and such. So while in college, I, I was studying small business marketing and management. I was part of a school club. I noticed that the students in lots of the school clubs, including the one that I belong to, they wanted to sing and dance. Um, hence, they planned lots of shows. So being somewhat knowledgeable about the entertainment business at that time and hearing lots of stories of how young people had to sneak their way to the top to becoming the next renowned singer or dancer, I decided to leverage my awareness from working on the project, what I seen, and my connection that I made uh, to educate young people about different professions that the industry offered. And um, so they can use that to get their foot in the door. I mean, if, the, if you want to speak to what's the top five, but here is an event to help you get your feet into that door. So um, I started the planning event. I had no, no experience, no prior experience in events planning. I needed money to implement the event, so I asked companies to invest. Um, I didn't realize I was using the wrong word until I approached the corporate brands to invest in my events. And as fast as I asked them to invest, the faster they showed me the exit sign. So it was horrific. It was embarrassing. Um and somehow the word sponsor, sponsorship came into my realm. I don't know how. Can I tell you that? I guess I don't know. Um, it's not something I learned in school. I didn't read it. I, no one taught it to me. So um, when the word came to me, when I kept my pitch, with the exception of changing my vocabulary from investor, sponsor, and here I am. Into you, the world of sponsorship opened up for me. And so it's opened up, and you've been successful for, I think you said before, coming up on 20 years. Can you just outline maybe one or two of maybe some of your favorite or, or most high profile events and clients that you've worked with? Sure. My events, um, all the events that I planned were sponsored. Um, I planned the seminars, uh, fashion, and and talent shows, open mics, uh, different themes, events. Um, my, my sponsors include um, Adidas, Tommy Hilfiger, Rite Aid, Liberty Partnership Program, uh, King Coast Models, among many others, some of which are private sponsors. And no doubt over that period of time, considering your expertise in the event sponsorship industry you've 
had events probably of all types contacting you for assistance you know roberta can you please help us secure some sponsors what are some red flags or signs uh, that you pick up when you're talking to a potential client a potential event that tell you that the things that they tell you that just indicates to you that maybe they're not quite ready for sponsorship I do get approached a lot um, from from prospects looking, you know, for me to secure sponsors for them. Um, it's something that I strayed away from because a lot of uh, sponsorship speakers they do not understand really what what sponsorship is. Um, a huge, I mean, this is one of the hugest red flags, and and, and it's still um, is happening today. Is calling sponsorship or donation. So um, every time I hear it, I actually cringe, especially from sponsorship uh, professionals, quote and unquote sponsorship sponsorship professionals. Um, totally turned off uh, by that. Um, another thing is uh, some individuals think sponsorship is only about putting out banners or giving the sponsor a shout out or placing the sponsor's logo on a website to actually not finding any value in in-kind sponsorship. So, for example, a sponsorship speaker might say, you know, I need airline tickets for my headliner to attend my event, let's say at Qantas. Uh, Qantas Airways to sponsor the tickets because their their seats was going to be empty anyway. So why not, um, you know, sponsor the event? I think that is a huge red flag that once the property does not understand how sponsorship works and they are not going to take care of the sponsor or the sponsorship. And so following on from that, when some of those flags get raised or you get some indications that an, that an event may be not quite ready for sponsorship, how do you actually go about addressing those areas of concern so that they actually can be ready and in turn be successful with sponsors? Glad you asked. Um, I actually offer, you know, I, I usually let them know um you, you, I, I don't do it for you. That, that's one thing. I also um, let them know, advise them to become educated on, on what sponsorship is, right? Um, whether it's through reading a book. Um, I even offer myself, uh, Danielle, on Facebook Live where I, I, I come on um, once, well, now I do it once a month, to answer questions so that sponsorship speakers can become more aware and familiar with uh, sponsorship. Also, um, you know, I would advise for them to join groups on LinkedIn, you know, follow sponsorship uh, professionals, learn from them, actually just learn the fundamentals of sponsorship. Roberta, are there certain sponsor objectives that are better or more easily achieved through event sponsorship rather than those other rights holders? I, I believe, um, you know, the, the, eight, the eight core objectives that you're familiar with, that still stands. Um, through event sponsorship, uh, sponsors can use, as you mentioned, the brand awareness, uh, the brand positioning, 
community engagement and relations building to achieve generational consumers and supporters. I don't know why the focus is not on that as yet. You know, generational consumers very important. Another objective um, I would add is um, brand perception. Uh, how does the audience feel or view the sponsor's product? Specifically, is there a strong message attached to the product or service? For example, the launch of a new medicine or converting to a new currency. Brand perception is very important as well. And do you think there are certain brand categories that are better suited to considering event sponsorship as opposed to other types of sponsorship? Daniel, I don't think so. I believe each category in its own right is served a direct purpose. So um, there are categories that show how different brands can come together to support a common cause. Then in another category, the sponsorship um, can show how one brand can be the boss or maintain power within a certain industry or among a certain group. So I, I don't, I don't believe so. I don't think so. What about? Have you worked on any event sponsorship where there's a brand that's sponsoring the event and? might be considered for maybe the target audience or the general public. From the outside in, they might consider that brand sponsoring that event as being a a poor or an unusual fit, but in execution, it was actually excellent. Absolutely. I remember a couple of years, I think this was in the late 90s, when I say a couple of years, maybe the early 20s, uh, it was during Halloween, during the season of Halloween, and I uh, planned a costume party for children, and the best costume won a cash prize. Um, Rite Aid was known in the community as just filling prescriptions. And wouldn't be seen, you know, the, wouldn't be viewed as such a good fit for a children's event or a costume party for children. However, um, Danielle, if you were to look deeper, you'll notice that uh, Rite Aid products, if you're familiar with the brand, um, like a Walgreens, um, you can look at what well, Rite Aid, the products and services serve an entire family from children to parents. So Rite Aid did not only fill prescriptions, but sold costumes, birthdays, cards, candy, skin lotion, to everything else that family can actually use. So on the, if you're looking from the outside in, you're not seeing it, but it makes a great partnership um, between the community and my day. With so many events on these days and with there being lots of audience crossover in terms of an audience will be uh, engaged and or attend one event and then uh, they will attend different events. So there's lots of audience crossover. People are attending multiple events. Uh, it's not like a rights holder who was a sports team where the, the audience or, or the fans really just follow that one team. And so with so many events and lots of crossover, how do events 
position themselves as as unique and actually stand out from the crowd, that crowd of other events, and, and stand out to sponsors? Definitely consistency. Consistency is important. Um, one of the, the, the hugest uh, events we can think of is the Olympics, right? Consistency, the, the, the sport of NFL. Um, consistency is important. Other ways events can uh, stand out is to stop copying other events and to focus on their event's purpose. So, Let's say uh, we're planning an event, you and I, Danielle, and we're planning an event. Um, we're both planning a music festival, but separately. So some of the questions that we may ask ourselves, um, why am I planning this event? Uh, so people have, can have fun. Who are the people, college students? Um, where do they live? Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So tell me more. Um, they love to make music and love to listen to music. Am I looking to make money? How much? So same questions, however, our answer might be totally different. So focus on your event's purpose. Another way to stand out is to focus on unique benefits that this uh, event has to offer. So for example, if it's a private meeting behind the scenes with level speed, we executives or activated mergers that give the audience an enhanced experience or a memorable experience. So those are some of the ways that um, events could uh, stand out. Another is um, offering the sponsors exciting and strategic, strategic activation. I mean, old school strategies are still valuable, uh, meaning locals on the shirts, banners at events, radio and podcast mentions still has value. However, when activated through experiential marketing, which is something I truly, truly love and would love to see more of, partner with technology, artificial intelligence, things like that, fireworks, it happens. Um, The audience, what happens is the audience can actually follow the path which leads them to the sponsor. So, for example, when I listen to a program and hear this program is sponsored by XYZ, I'm thinking not only as a prospective supporter, but also as a sponsorship professional, okay, that was a shout-out to this sponsor, but what do they want me to do or how does a shout-out equal ROI? So that's one way that, or another way that, an event can actually stand out. Yeah, I think there's some some great pointers for the listeners in in there. When sponsoring events, there's always that great opportunity to, from a brand's perspective, to activate your sponsorship as the event happens. And that event might just be a couple of hours or it might be a couple of days long. But there's always that great opportunity to activate your sponsorship as the event happens, as it is live. But there are also non-event occurring benefits that are usually included in the sponsorship and need activation. How does event activation around those differ from non-event activation? It is true. Um, All benefits are not activated during the event. A good example is sales generation. It can take months. 
to convert warm leads into clients if you're not doing on-site sales. But um, had it not been for that event, the sponsor would have to spend much more for those leads. And what are your thoughts on that spend? What are your thoughts on what a brand should be spending on event activation proportionate maybe to their overall sponsorship of an event? There are so many strategies. From the one I mentioned that I love, experiential marketing. Uh, you know, we have the relationship marketing, content marketing, um, and the cost associated with each one is different. It's based, it's based on relationship, right? What uh, would you, would I would pay for something, maybe some of another person would pay for something. It's based on perception of value. It's based on geographical area and, and such things. So I think that really it should be left up to the property to decide how much they need to spend on event activation out of the overall sponsorship of the event. And staying on activations, what's an example of one of your favorite activations from an event? What did they do? If you could let us know what you think the objectives were around it and why you think it was well executed. Definitely Red Bull is the only one really that stands out, uh, that it actually comes to mind when I think about great activations. Um, when I think of anything having to do with high energy or being energized, Red Bull has cornered the market, market segment. Um, they, what Red Bull has done, they actually positioned themselves more on an intangible side. So, for example, Red Bull, it makes you feel like you have wings or it makes you feel you can go the extra mile and need a boost, you know, whenever you need that boost of energy. Or if you're at a party, it makes you feel that, you know, you drink the Red Bull, you'll put an extra boogie in your step. <laughs> so they did pretty, pretty well by partnering with brands, um, uh, partnering with um, events that are high energy events, uh, high energy events. They did pretty good for that. So Red Bull, anything high energy, Red Bull is, is, is conquered that, that, um, that partnership. And, and as we touched on earlier, you've, you've been working in this space, uh, focused on this space for just coming up to, to 20 years. Over that time, how have you seen brands' approaches to sponsoring events change? I'm seeing larger brands um, partner with smaller and community-oriented events. So that's good. I'm also seeing that brands, oh my God, I'm so happy for this part, that they're actually expecting a return on their investment. Uh, I know it's a huge problem. How do you measure it? So that is a huge problem. But at least the conversation has started. Um I first learned about Raymore and Flanagan, the only event that I attended that took place inside of a Raymore and Flanagan store. Then I started to see the brand name at more community events. 
than on local news. So um, they are as passionate as see that the larger brands are, you know, they're they're going they're going deep by by engaging with the community and after that it's just kind of like spread. So I see I see that change taking place. And on the flip side, over the same period of time, how have you seen the events, the rights holders change their approach to to being sponsored and and how they position and execute it and manage it? Um, what I'm noticing, um, what I'm noticing with the rights holders, um, they they are thinking, you know, to. It's a little on the strict side, just as you said. They are approaching the smaller brands for sponsorship. Um, they're not all rushing the larger brands, which is good because, you know, small brands, they do need um, someone who has the influence or who can actually take them into a new market or expand their market or whatever that brand is, is looking for. Also, right holders, um, they want more control whether it's control over the content, um, the direction of, of where they're taking the event, they want more control. Um, they're trying not to let the, the sponsor or the sponsorship overshadow the purpose or the reason they're having the event. Simultaneously, they are going up, uh, coming up with different creative ways by incorporating technologies for sponsors to engage with their audience. So they're using technology to uh, enhance the um, enhance the engagement, the audience engagement. Seeing that a lot, they're, they're getting very creative. I wish I had have had this question ready earlier when you were speaking about Red Bull because I think Red Bull are uh, the masters of, of, of this approach. But I'm curious about whether you think essentially brands creating their own events and, and actually owning them and, and executing them or their own experiences versus sponsoring a rights holder that has an established event and essentially trying to access somebody else's audience is a good approach or not? That's a great question, Danielle, because it's something that I thought about and, um, you know, until now, it's like... To, to give it some consideration. Um, my side of it is there, there isn't anything wrong with being self-contained, right? But brands have to remember that right holders are the ones who influence their audience and are the ones who have the following. So it's not practical for... It's not, I think it's not practical at this time. Of course, there's always, you know an exception to the rule, but overall it's not practical. Now, in my research, I know that you believe that brands that target communities uh, in trying to sell their products or services should partner with the communities in which they sell that product or service. And while that might on the surface seem like a straightforward approach, it seems like it would be a win-win. However, how does a brand go about doing that without it feeling like they are just uh, engaging with and committing to the community purely for a commercial gain? Well, 
it's, it's obvious that brands into communities to fulfill needs via their products and services. Those needs can always be met by competition who are outside the communities, especially if the competition is having a sale. So I'll give you an example. I attended a grand opening of a bank a few months back. I noticed a few things. One, the neighborhood was becoming gentrified. Two, it will be years before gentrification takes full effect. And three, there was another bank that has been in the community for years, just feet away from the grand opening. The doors were open, but no one came in. So as I was speaking with a few of the, the bank's executives, I mentioned to them the, the significance of engaging with the current community through education. Um, for example, how to open banks account, account for small children, how to become credit worthy for a loan, I'm sure that's more than the, the other bank was offering. One thing I have found, I have found that, that's very, you know, is very funny is, you know, how people will walk past an establishment that is 50 feet away from them to go to another establishment that's 100 feet away. And that's all because a brand does not engage with the community they are currently in. Hmm. I think that's that's uh, an interesting point and quite insightful, Roberta. When we enter into sponsorships, there's a lot of contractual things that both sides need to deliver on. They're the non-negotiable, so to speak, and usually that's that's skewed very heavily towards. Uh, a sponsor supporting a rights holder, i.e., you know, the rights holder has to deliver a bunch of contractual benefits as part of that agreement, and they are non-negotiable. But I'm curious about whether there's any maybe easy and and genuine ways that a rights holder can can support a sponsor outside of what they're contractually obliged to. Yeah, Danielle, the discussion needs to take place. Right. Um, it needs to it needs to happen. There are lots of event organizers who are self-contained, and brands are missing out. For example, one of the biggest events that became a household name in the states was Gold Train. No brand association, uh, no brand association, hence no brand loyalty was established. There are event organizers today who have a huge following and supporters in various industries and countries, some of whom I've asked, why haven't you partnered with sponsors? And the most common response among this group was non-negotiable. So it's important for right holders to choose sponsors that they like. So once you've done that, rights right holders can convey a sponsor's message in ways that a sponsor doesn't know how to or doesn't have access to. Uh, they can demonstrate their loyalty, and this is right holders, um, by shopping with their sponsors despite of self-promotion from the competition. They can encourage their family and friends to support the sponsor. They can donate 
to the sponsor's nonprofit organization or rally, but the sponsor among a cause that they care about, showing the sponsor's group offline or online. And um, you can even attend other sponsors' um, events, other events that sponsor, uh, supported or sponsored by the sponsor. There's some great ideas in there that I uh, I hope people had a pen and paper and were writing those down or we'll go back and listen uh, to that part of the podcast again because I think there's some, some really good suggestions in there to, to really show that you, you, you care about the sponsor and that it's not just a contractual obligation. Roberta, you once secured some sponsorship for an event from Tommy Hilfiger, uh, but the process was overshadowed uh, by rumours of racism. Can you share that story? Sure. The reason I solicit Tommy Hilfiger for sponsorship is because of the rumors of racism. Um, this was, again, in the late 1990s, so maybe the early 2000s, and I was planning a fashion and talent show for children. So I, I thought um, my event would be a good outlet to convey that the rumor was false after meeting Tommy Hilfiger in prior months before the rumor. And in the meeting, I never had an inkling that Tommy Hilfiger was racist. The person who introduced, um, who actually made that meeting happen um, was an African-American. And when you look around Tommy Hilfiger's office, you see a lot of color. African American people working there. And I'm not saying he's that's the reason I don't think he was racist. I'm saying, saying when I was in that meeting I didn't get that. Um I got that he's a forward thinker. Um so before or should say during the event that I planned, before introducing the Tommy Hill figure segment in the show, I incorporated a conversation piece to speak to the audience about the rumor. After the conversation and explaining how uh, Tommy Hilfiger brand is helping the children meet their goals, the audience became more receptive to engaging with the brand again. And that has been passed down to the generation, which is not only the parents, but the children who were part of the show, including my son who was in the show. So he was to go shopping right now and has to choose between, you know, another brand and Tommy Hilfiger. That's how it works. We are Tommy Hilfiger all the way. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story because uh, it's, the emotional connection and the positive uh, perception of the Tommy Hilfiger brand is probably stronger because those rumours happened, albeit false, but then were worked through and actually by addressing those rumours had the opportunity to to really go more deep into the story about how they help the community. Uh, I think it's a it's an, it's an interesting process. Now, Roberta, you're the author 
of the book, How to Secure Sponsors Successfully. Uh, And while the title is very descriptive and with my marketing background, I love that. I love businesses and products and services that have a descriptive name. We know instantly what they're going to do. So I love the title, How to Secure Sponsors Successfully. And while that title is descriptive, uh, can you expand on what's in the book? Yes, thank you, Danielle. The book was uh, meant to be straight to the point and uh, simple, easy to understand and and, and to follow for securing sponsors. Um, The book speaks about uh, common sponsorship terms, right? It it mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, I was using the, the wrong word. So doors were closed in my face. So common sponsorship uh, terms, sponsorship, sponsorship speakers need to know. Um, it also has the um, the 15 second pitch, right, to communicate with sponsors. So a person might be nervous when they call; they don't know what to say. Here's a 15 second pitch. Um, just you know, just just tweak it to be fine. So um, that's there. Um, another thing too is Sponsorship proposals. How how do you write a sponsorship proposal? No way it should be. My thing is, um, you know, you don't need to be long and drawn out. It should be straight to the point. So the um, in the book it shows you how to write a sponsorship proposal, and a sample is also included um, in there. And the book's in its third edition. What are some of the differences or changes in approaches that are now in the third edition of the book compared to the first and second editions? How has it changed? How has it changed and evolved? Yeah, um, sponsorship continues to to, to evolve, as, as you know. Um, a huge problem and a hot topic in the sponsorship industry is ROI, return on investment. You know, how do we know if the sponsorship is working? How can we tell if we are using the right activation to reach the expected outcomes? Things like that. Um, so the third edition it addresses that um, it, it addresses that issue. One of the major addition in the third edition is is Vemis. It's called Vemis. Vemis is a metric that let us know if the sponsorship will be successful before activating the sponsorship. And it also lets us be mindful of what we're measuring. Is it shift? Is it numbers? What are we really measuring here? Um, the first and the second edition, I learned a, a little bit more about my readers and the type of events that they plan. So I share the importance of having insurance and the other types of professionals that they can work with uh, to build more equity, I should say, in their events and to get better better results. Then there is the conclusion in in the third edition that I did not put in the other books, which that is very dear to me. Uh, that gives readers some insight of what type of personalities they can encounter when prospecting for sponsorship and how to get past it. And um, also included is an update in the shift in category. You rightly noted that sponsorship is continually 
evolving. Do you think event sponsorship will change much in the foreseeable future? Where do you see it going? Um, from, from where I started or from when I started, it, ha- it has changed. Um, sponsorship professionals have become more open to new partnerships and they're straying away from the same old, same old. But those who decide to remain stuck and refuse to take part in change, they will not be going for competition, you know, for, for, for dominating a certain market. Um, I look forward to the change as it helps consumers and supporters with better shopping and engaging experience, living better lives, and um, to build in more strategic relationships with brands and communities as well that results in, of course, win-win partnerships. Moving back to the book and your other books, you better give them a bit of a plug. Where can people go to buy the book or, or any of your others? The book is uh, found on eventsandsponsors.com. And when you go there, you'll see a menu that says books. And you, you'll click on, on there. You'll see, um, you'll choose which book you want. And you click on it. And it will take you to the page where you can make your purchase. And of course, for the listeners, we'll put a direct link to that uh, for you. In the show notes, Roberta, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about events and sponsors and, and the work that you do and how you can help people, what can they do? They can send me an email at info at eventsandsponsors.com or visit me online at www.eventsandsponsors.com. Roberta Vigilance, owner of Vigilance, Style and Grace. Thank you so much for taking us inside event sponsorship. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. As I've mentioned a couple of times, events obviously provide a unique opportunity for sponsorship success, but there's a lot to navigate there and a lot of different things and nuances to keep in mind. So thanks again to Roberta for spending some time with us and taking us inside event sponsorship. It's very much appreciated. To you, the listeners, thanks again for tuning into the show. As I mentioned at the top, be sure to get in contact with us and say hi. Just like Muhammad and Hugh, we'd love to hear from you. So if you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Mark Thompson, you can email him on mark at sponserve.net or also find him on LinkedIn. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.